Hello and welcome to Talking Euretina, the official podcast of the European Society of Retina Specialists. I'm Jonathan McRae. In this podcast, we bring you expert discussions and interviews with leaders from the world of retina and beyond. We also keep you up to date with the latest news from the society. In this podcast, we're bringing you quite the treat, an interview with the inventor of OCT, Optical Coherence Tomography, Professor David Huang. Our chairs are very eager to get going, so I will hand you straight over to Piers Keane and Tunde Peto. Tunde. Thanks, Jonathan, and it's wonderful to be back at Talking You Retina. This podcast today is, is being recorded between um, three of us. Myself is, I'm Professor Tunde Peto, Professor of Clinical Ophthalmology at Queen's University, Belfast, Professor Piers Keane, who is at UCL and Morford's Eye Hospital, and Professor David Huang, who is our honoured guest. He has won the Oscar Award, which has been awarded since 1945 to the living person who made a major contribution to medical science or who have performed public service on behalf of medicine. And we are delighted that he has won this award for OCT technology, which has really revolutionised our clinics and our patient care. Piers, would you like to lead on the second award? Yes, yeah, so Tunde, not only has he won the Lasker Award, but also, I think just as excitingly for the community of ophthalmology, he has recently been awarded the National Medal of Technology and Innovation from President Joe Biden in the United States, which is the highest honor the, the United States government can bestow. So it's, it's really, really a great pleasure and a great honor for us to be able to interview him on this podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your early career and how did you get into um, studying at Boston and why did you decide to do an MD, PhD and why ophthalmology? Well, uh, I came to the United States when I was 13 from Taiwan. And for high school, I was uh, in a small town in upstate New York where uh, most people kind of stayed on a farm not many people uh, went out of state for college, and I credit a uh, science teacher, Dr. Terry Peer, from uh, steering me toward the elite colleges when I was applying. And I didn't even know about MIT, but he told me about MIT and other schools that I should be applying to because he recognized I was very good at science and math. And I think that it kind of changed my life since at MIT, I met a lot of other people who fit my type during college. And I, I kind of stayed on for uh, 12 years in Boston since I uh, got into the Harvard MIT Health Science and Technology program for MD, PhD. And uh, that put me in between medicine and engineering, uh, which I really enjoyed. I think it's very rare for uh, people to learn physiology in engineering terms. And that, that's what we had. There's a series of three classes I remember that were really special and distinct. And I had, you know, the years between uh, the basic science medicine courses and clinical clerkship to do research. And my first research projects were in tissue engineering. We developed a, a ligament equivalent cultural tissue, but I did not find it creative enough, I guess. 
uh, so I, I searched around for other projects just in the uh, adjacent MIT building. And it just so happened that Jim Fujimoto's lab uh, in the ultra-fast laser group, and that, that, that means femtosecond lasers, were right in the right next building. And I went there and toured their lab and found these uh, fancy lasers, dye lasers, tie sapphire lasers, colorful lasers, infrared lasers. And I, I learned that they were able to produce the shortest pulses in the world at that time in that lab, which sounds very fantastic. And that they were doing uh, biomedical applications. So um, I had a chance to, to sign on to that for my PhD project. And actually worked on quite a lot of projects, not just uh, OCT, but also uh, generating femtosecond lasers. I had one brief project on that, which worked, did not result in the best femtosecond laser in the world, but was very exciting nevertheless. Uh, I worked on using femtosecond lasers to cut tissue. And I did not work on uh, using femtosecond lasers to measure tissue thickness. That was already done about five years uh, before my time. Uh, so the mission that Professor Jim Fujimoto gave me was to actually use an interferometer to measure tissue thickness, which led to OCT. And, and David, so this advent of OCT, do you, would you describe it as kind of a eureka moment or was it a slow burn? Uh, how did the idea for optical coherence tomography uh, begin to evolve? Well, I was given a pretty simple mission at first to uh, measure corneal thickness with the uh, eventual thought of measuring uh, corneal incisions like radiokeratotomy incision depth. And that worked very well. And as a result, we, we built a um, interferometer that could measure very faint reflections. It was able to detect one to the 10 to the minus 10th or 100 dB of uh, sensitivity. So if you launch you know, 10 billion photon, only one came back, you could detect it. And it also had a good depth resolution. It had a resolution about 10 micrometers because we used a a superluminescent diode that was uh, modified from a laser diode that had very uh, relatively broad spectrum. It's it's not very broad in today's terms, but in those days it was fairly broad. So I think that set the background for developing OCT because when I measure a, a retinal specimen, I saw that there are not just uh, the front and back reflections but also many internal reflections, especially when we plotted it on a logarithmic uh, scale. So even small reflections are visible. So that seems to show that there are many internal structures in the retina, a nominally transparent tissue that could be seen with this technology. And uh, it was difficult to interpret these layers using just one axial scan. So my thought was naturally that, well, we need, uh, we need to compile many of these scans. And then the thought became, that would be like building an image. And then the thought became, 
What's the best way to visualize these retinal layers? And I went out and found that there are software to collate digital data and form images, something called Spyglass. I convinced Professor Fujimoto to share all the money to, to buy it. And we collected the data and compiled the image. And, you know, we, we could see retinal layers. And, and then I realized that we, we have found a new imaging modality and it, it's different from the others in that it has 10 or 100 times the resolution. And that, of course, was very exciting. And all this happened, uh, I think, within the scope of several days. So I, I would call that the aha moment or the aha days where I was just thinking and doing things and analyzing data and creating new visualization. And one thing led to the other, and it certainly was a very exciting, very wakeful few days. Did you have any realization during those few days that what you were doing was something that would change the world? Well, I, I knew it would be important just based on the um, realization that in a lot of situations, this could create higher resolution view of tissues. And surely it must be able to you know, outshine a lot of other imaging modalities. And, and after that, of course, the thought is, well, what is this good for? And just based on the reasoning that this has higher resolution in the depth dimension gave us the idea that this would be good for situations or tissues in which uh, there are fine layers uh, that are critical for function. And of course, retina, the intimal layers of arteries and blood vessels in general, uh, the inner surface of gastrointestinal tract, uh, cornea, uh, the, these all came into mind. So we uh, went out and uh, collected these tissue samples. And uh, we, we were lucky that a lot of people decided to, to, to help us. We had uh, collaborators at Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary. Joel Schumann was a, a glaucoma fellow there at that time, uh, introduced to us by Carmen Pugliafito, who was already collaborating with Jim Fujimoto. And he brought in a few times retinal specimens, uh, starting with animals and then cadaver, uh, human cadaveric uh, eyes. And I also had a talk to cardiologists and gastroenterologists uh, at Harvard Medical School. And despite me being just a student, amazingly, uh, people were willing to give me specimens that we scanned. And uh, I couldn't make sense of what we were seeing in the gastric mucosa. So I gave up on that. But we, we also published, uh, we, you know, we published in a science article the, the image of the retina and optic nerve and also an uh, image from a coronary artery uh, plaque, which uh, kind of uh, introduced uh, those two applications, which are now the, the biggest applications for OCT in ophthalmology and cardiology. So that simple reasoning uh, really came to fruition. Uh, so that, that gave me a lot of confidence that I could reason from first principles and build research directions or programs and they, they will work and people will use it.
before I hand back to uh, Tunda to um, ask the next question, though, I, I just, how does it feel to have, an, you know, co-invented something that is used in millions of people all around the world? Maybe that's a hard, an impossible question for you to answer, but I'm just curious, uh, how must that feel? It's wonderful. And it's, uh, you know, I, you, you get a feeling you don't deserve so much credit because OCT today is so different from OCT when we first built it. It's more than a thousand times faster. The resolution now could be 10 times better than we had. And we are now imaging at or sort of wavelength using or sort of a new contrast that really extended its range of applications. And that's not just the work of me or my research group, but really thousands of people in academia and industry and in the clinic. So um, I, you know, I get the feeling that Jim Fujimoto, Eric Swanson and me don't deserve all the credit, but getting all these awards uh, and getting all this attention is certainly wonderful. And I, I'm glad that it puts this invention and uh, imaging and I really on, onto uh, kind of a big stage for, for a small period of time so that it's more visible and better known. And I, I hope it will uh, extend its reach. I'm already getting contacts from my colleagues to want me to uh, apply this amazing technology to the, their discipline, uh, you know, like uh, in dermatology or neurosurgery, which have been uh, explored before, but of course, with the newer OCT technology of today may uh, become feasible because of much higher speed and, and uh, better penetration in some cases. You know, um, initially, back 30 years ago, it's only possible to use OCT to do tomographic imaging uh, over a few millimeters of tissue because it was so slow. But now that you can do imaging at several thousand times that speed, you could image over centimeters with the same resolution. And that could make a big difference. It applies. That means uh, it's useful not only uh, just in the macula where the, the several millimeters of tissue are critical, but you can apply it to larger organs. Absolutely. So, and, and also, you know, there, there's a huge push on applying it to neurodegenerative diseases and everything else that well, the aging population might get. But you've alluded to it that it wasn't just yourself. You obviously had a team and you had a very, very uh, influential early mentor in your life. So how did you build the team who then took this um, invention to, to the market? And, and how, how big does a team need to be? And how do you separate your research and then going into, into technology? Well, the initial um, clinical dissemination of OCT technology, um, I didn't really have a lot to do with because that occurred in over the 90s when I was in internship and residency and fellowship training in ophthalmology. And I, I should credit it to uh, 
Jim Fujimoto, Eric Swanson, and Carmen Puyafito, who form a company mm -hmm. to develop uh, that technology into a clinical prototype and then sell it to uh, investors and large companies who could take it to market. So for in ophthalmology, that was um, uh, the technology was licensed from MIT and Messiah Year, who uh, had a, a U.S. patent in, in OCT to Humphrey Instruments, which was later acquired by Carl Zeiss. And they developed a series of uh, OCT products in the 90s uh, that I don't think did very well, honestly. Uh, only major academic eye centers had OCT1 and OCD2. And the performance of that product was actually lower than the MIT uh, prototypes. Uh, they only had 100 axial scans per second, and uh, the resolution was rather low, so the images were very grainy. But I think there were early adapters who were amazed by that technology, nevertheless. And there were many uh, initial you know, translational clinical research articles that were published. There was a textbook that's written by this group, and also Michael He, who uh, was a MD-PhD student who took over this OCT project. And I, I think that slowly grew uh, consciousness in the ophthalmology world on how to use this technology. So in uh, 2002, when uh, a better OCT instrument came along, the, the third version from Zeiss, the Stratus, which I think sold about 7,000 units, that was really when OCT became mainstream. And that only really operated at 400 XL scans per second. So you have kind of a medium definition image that you could, you could obtain in one or two seconds of scanning. But that was enough for uh, retina sp specialists to realize that you're seeing things that really you could not possibly see with your biomicroscopic bio uh, examination, no matter how good you are. You could see macular uh, edema, holes, traction much better. Uh, than you could with the best contact lens examination. I absolutely remember having loved the Stratus. And then, of course, when some of the newer technologies came came along, then we right. didn't think Stratus was so amazing. But at, at that time, it was just an absolute eye-opener and being able to visualize and also to tell the patient that this is what you have. You know, to explain the disease to some of our patients, to explain the disease to the relatives as to why the patient is not seeing well, was actually a real game changer in, in medical retina clinics. Yeah, and I, I credit Zeiss and its uh, leader at that time, John Moore, uh, who had the vision that this will be a major ophthalmic diagnostic product and stuck with it despite it being like a money loser for five years, uh, just keep investing and improving it uh, un until they have a success successful product. And then of course, anti-VEGF therapy for uh, neovascular AMD uh, happened at that time uh, because now you can see in depth, uh, you can see 
corridor neovascular membranes, you could see fluid accumulation in the retina. And that gave you uh, the ability to recruit the right patients in clinical trials and measure the uh, outcome of anti-VEGF treatment. I think OCT accelerated the development of anti-VEGF therapy and the explosion of anti-VEGF therapy in the retina clinic really drove the utilization of OCT and this these two uh, inventions or discoveries kind of fed on each other and led to widespread use uh, in, in ophthalmology over the first few years of this century. <laughs> and I definitely could not have predicted that. And I, I couldn't predict how there was a, a revolution uh, I, between 2003 and 2006, Fourier domain OCT uh, specifically, uh, the spectral domain variety became successfully developed into commercial instruments, and that made the imaging like 50 times faster in one stroke, and uh, that also drove the uh, success of OCT. And uh, those those are just amazing years. Can I just say, um, Stratus OCT will always have a special place in my heart. Uh, because that's where I really learned to interpret uh, retinal disease. And I feel like even if there hadn't been Fourier domain OCT and the subsequent versions, then even Stratus OCT was completely transformative. Mm-hmm. But I should also say that when I started ophthalmology in as a resident in 2003, and the hospital that I trained in in the south of Ireland was really kind of unusual because even though you know it wasn't like a um, really really massive center, they had the version of OCT that preceded Stratus OCT. So I think it would have been one of those maybe from Humphrey Instruments or something like that. And I just remember even then falling in love with it. And I think it was because I was a resident who was starting and like struggling to detect fluid on a slit lamp or detect a macula, you know. A, mac- a full thickness macular hole versus a partial thickness macular hole. And here was this device that did it so beautifully and so elegantly, even if it seemed grainy at the time. But to me, it wasn't. To me, it was beautiful. And to me, it was exciting. And it was that that made me want to go to the US and do research and and uh, pursue this. So I just want to, to thank you for that and, and highlight that point. So, so can I can I just take you a little bit further in a sense that if you have a young researcher or a young resident who is wanting to do research, wanting to do innovation, wanting to do technological research, what are the attributes that you would be looking for and what advice would you give them? Well, I think my uh, experience has been fairly unique. I'm not sure <laughs> that it generalizes well, but... For me, I think this invention kind of came from several fortunate uh, events that I could not have predicted. And I just went with my instincts to work on things that are creative, where there are many creative possibilities and where things are interesting because of the the novelty and the, the interesting physics which were a lot of fun to learn. And I think that the, the key thing in, in the invention of OCT was 
the realization that you can exceed your original goal, kind of think bigger than your original mission that you were given. So I would say at least a habit I've been formed is to always try to think bigger and broader about the thing you're working on or investigating and think about whether there could be bigger applications in areas that were not originally thought of. And also always seek out uh, people who are kind of the, the best in their technical fields. I feel like uh, my co-inventors, Jim Fujimoto and Eric Swanson, were kind of the, the top engineers in their respective areas in lasers and photonics. And it's in the, the cutting edge technology where uh, these inventions became possible. So always work with the best people that you can find, maybe something that is generalizable, I suppose. If I can just ask maybe one more question before we begin to, to wrap things up. What's the area of ophthalmic imaging or retinal imaging or even medical imaging more generally that excites you most? Or what's the other area of research and innovation that excites you most to, to see come to fruition in the coming years? There are a lot of things, but uh, there, there are a couple of things where my research group is working on that uh, excites me. One is optoretinography or imaging of photoreceptor function. It's been around for more than 10 years now, I think. And uh, the approach has usually been to image single photoreceptors and measure the change in reflectivity or phase or path length. But we are working on uh, whether it can be made more uh, practical by imaging ensembles of photoreceptors over a larger area to make it possible to do optoretinography over the entire macula, for example, so that it can be used to derive biomarkers that might be useful in clinical trials of AMD or uh, retinal degenerations. So. Um, it's taking a phenomenon that's fairly well known, but uh, trying to make it more clinically useful. And another is Doppler OCT to characterize ocular circulation better to measure the uh, flow in the retinal arteries and veins with good time resolution and good flow accuracy. And I think that would open a window to cardiovascular diseases and neurovascular diseases and make it uh, useful in a number of disciplines outside of ophthalmology. Uh, like you said, diagnosis of neurological diseases like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's could be a big application for OCT in the eye. So th I think that's exciting also. Well, thank you very much. I think it's it's time to wrap up if you if you don't mind. And um, we would really like to thank you for your contribution to science, to ophthalmology, to our patient, making our patient's life better. Being able to do this um, these exams are really, really uh, life changing for for most of our patients. And now that we have uh, therapies that we can also build on uh, the two together, really revolutionized our clinical care. 
So on behalf of um, Professor Piers Keen, um, you Retina Port podcast and myself, Professor Tunda Pacha, we would really like to thank you and we wish you all the best. And it has been wonderful to see you winning all these prizes. Thank you very much. Thank you. And, and Piers, thank you for sharing your initial experience with OCT when you were still a trainee. Uh, stories like that really warm my heart. Uh, a lot of people tell me about their first experience with what OCT and how that might have changed their career. And it changed my life. It changed it my life. It always amazes yeah. me. Jonathan, can I just say one story, David, very quickly? Uh, yeah. I worked in Africa in the summer. I, I do work quite a bit in Africa. But the clinic I was working in in Sub-Saharan Africa, has nobody has ever seen an OCT or an OCT image. And so while I was there, they had an OCT donated to them. And to teach someone to to how to use the OCT, what it means, the the way they looked at the images. And, and some patients actually cried when they see, saw their own eyes and, they, and the relatives were just totally overwhelmed by being able to see why their loved ones can't see. It was something that, that was probably very close to Pierce's first experience, but experiencing it now in 2023, when, when you think OCTs is a well-established technology, but seeing it in a clinic, in an environment where nobody has ever experienced an OCT and how it might change their clinic and putting in three weeks, putting new clinical pathways in place just to enable better patient care. It was just just unbelievable experience. So thank you very much. Thank you. Well, Professor David Wong, I have to say I've never seen such broad and wide smiles on our faculty before. You have two big fans there, I can see. And just to echo what they've said, thank you so much for your a contribution to science and it's great to hear how your work has affected not just patients but professionals alike yeah thank you jonathan yeah and i i totally understand the power of making the invisible visible and that always amazes people either something spiritual or physical <laughs> <laughs> good luck in the future and thanks again for joining the podcast thank you bye Thanks as well, of course, to our enthusiastic chairs, Tunda Petto and Piers Keen. Hope you enjoy this episode. You can comment by emailing us podcast at uretina.org. Uh, but that's it from us. If you'd like us to cover anything else or indeed speak to a special guest on the show, let us know and we will try and arrange that for you. You can email us, as we say, podcast at uretina.org. But that's it from now from us. I'm Jonathan McRae. We'll see you next time on Talking Uretina.